Come on, all the clowns, they said it wouldn't last. Settle down to the vibrant sounds of the Retrospection Podcast. Aural fire burns through your ears and listen to two old blokes wipe away your tears as they tell corny jokes. It's not another cat meme. Feel the buzz. It's Benedictine. Oh, I bet he does. Hello, and welcome to another outing of Retrospection. In this episode, we're mapping our way through the caverns of Dr. Fibes Rises Again from 1972, a sequel to the abominable Dr. Fibes. My name's Colin, and what kind of fiend are you? The cuddly kind. Are there cuddly fiends? I'm sure there must be. Defending fiends now? (laughs) Well, somebody has to. Well, you know... It's a good job that people can see you not sweating. (laughs) I don't sweat, like Prince Andrew. Oh. And my name's Paul, and my friend, that was your greatest mistake. You looked down. Did it never occur to you to look up? Oh, sorry, I was looking up. (laughs) I don't see anything. (laughs) IMDB says, The vengeful doctor rises again, seeking the scrolls of life in an attempt to resurrect his deceased wife. Are they referred to as scrolls of life in the film? No, they, he refers to the waters of life. Mm, and it's a map and a papyrus. That's right. Film stars Vincent Price as Dr. Anton Fibes, Robert Quarry as Darius Beiderbeck. Well done. Valley Kemp as uh, Full Labia. <laughs> oh, sorry, got that wrong, didn't I? Sorry, sorry, it's Full Navia. <sighs> Now, I'm going to have to find and replace it throughout all my notes. It's a good job I didn't think her name was Clitoris. I'd never be able to find that. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. Not at the same time. That would be weird. weird. I don't like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Hugh Griffith as Harry Ambrose. John Thor, you know, briefly, as Shavers. He's got absolutely no lines in this as well. Oh, I've given him some. Oh, have you? Okay, that's good then. (laughs) He screams a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. Peter Jeffrey as Detective Inspector Trout. John Cater as Superintendent Waverley. Peter Cushion, briefly, as a ship's captain. Mm-hmm. Beryl Reed, briefly, as Miss Ambrose. Terry Thomas, briefly, as Lombardo. These are the best bits in it, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Terry Thomas hyphenated his name because he thought of it as a brand? Really? Yeah, it's a very head of the game, isn't he? Well, he, he he created the persona, I suppose, didn't he? And he stuck with it for his yeah. entire career. So yeah, I can see why that why that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And Fiona Lewis as Diana Trowbridge. It's a good cast. It's a quirky oh, cast. Yeah. It's a quirky cast. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of balances between comedy and horror, right? I I always view this as a comedy horror. More than the first one. More, com- more comedic. It's more comedic. Than I mean, the, than the first one. The, the first one's quirky and comedic in places, but this ramps it up a lot. Right, right. 
Directed by Robert Faust, I guess. That's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, uh, Robert Faust. 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 Yeah. 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 We'll go with Faust. All right. And it's written by him and Robert Blease. Although there's some kind of argument between the two of them, right? Oh, enlighten me. Oh, do I have to? I thought you'd know. This is the kind of crap you know. I didn't write that one down, actually. <laughs> I wrote a lot of crap down, but not that one. <laughs> I'm going to have to wiki it because I can't remember what the discussion was. <laughs> yeah, so there was disagreement between them because they didn't agree on how to write the film. Um, I think some... They just didn't get on well together. Mm-hmm. I think some thought it was a comedy. Some thought it was a horror. Mm-hmm. And then there was some disagreement about Price and Robert Quarry. Yeah, there, there was quite a lot of disagreement between um, Robert Quarry and Vincent Price at the time. Because Quarry was supposed to be the replacement for Price? Yeah, AIP Pictures were lining Quarry up to be like their next big horror star. And um, I think Vincent Price didn't like that very much. Did, did you hear about the famous exchange of words that they had one day? Yeah, I did, but go on. <laughs> so Quarry found um, Vincent Price singing opera one day in between takes, didn't he? And uh, yeah. he said to him, you didn't know I could sing, did you? And apparently Vincent Price replied, well, I knew you weren't a fucking actor. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, but this uh, this Robert uh, Fuist, Faust, Fuist, what did we say? Fuist. He, as well as directing the previous Doctor Fives movie, um, he also directed lots of TV, including The Avengers, uh, he directed uh, an episode or two of Cat's Eyes, which see previous podcast. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if you know this movie. He directed the William Shatner starring horror movie, The Devil's Reign. Uh, oh, no, I'm not sure I've seen that one. It's got Ernest Borgnine in it as well. Oh, excellent cast. Yeah, 19, I think it's the late 70s. And um, it's pre-Star Trek The Motion Picture, so it's, it's, it's sort of chubby for Shatner, you know. It's sleeping in his car, Shatner. Sleeping in his car, Shatner, taking whatever jobs he can get, you know. Um, and it's a, it's that sort of 70s, you know, in the 70s, devil worshipping was a thing, wasn't it? It was a, you know, satanic panic and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of those kind of movies made. And um, he's very Shatner in it. <laughs> okay. That's all I'll say. Right. Uh, the song used at the end of the film, Over the Rainbow, was written 10 years after the time the f- Film is set. Well, Doctor Fives, he was, you know, he's a he's a future forward thinking guy, wasn't he? Maybe he wrote yeah. the song and passed it down. Oh yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. For a while, it was cut out the film. Is that because certain people, uh, certain companies, didn't like the fact that they used? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then came back into the film when the DVD was released. Oh really? So there, there's versions of this movie out there that don't have it. Yeah. All right. Okay. So there's probably a VHS copy somewhere that doesn't have it. That's interesting. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Did you read that there was uh, a third Dr. Fives movie planned? No. No. Oh, that's a shame. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't don't tip your hand. I mean, not, not, not shame that it didn't get made. Well, especially when you find out what it was going to be about. Apparently he was going to, he was going to fight Nazis. On the moon? No, no, no. He's going to fight Nazis uh, while searching for the key to Olympus. Oh. Mm-hmm. There's a key? There's a key. 
There's a key in this one as well, so maybe it's all about keys. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Possible titles for the third one were Fives Resurrectus. All right. The Seven Fates of Dr. Fives. Mm, all right, yeah. And The Brides of Dr. Fives. Oh, no. No. I kind of like Fives Resurrectus. You have to be really careful how you say it, though. You do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a, a, a spin-off series planned at one point with Fives Reformed and Fighting Crime. <laughs> <laughs> but with the same, like, unable to speak and... Yeah, yeah, he'd be Dr. Fives, but he'd be fighting crime. Yeah. I, I, you, come on, you, you know you'd watch at least a, one episode of that, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I'd watch one. Yeah. yeah definitely, yeah. <laughs> Just to see how they did it. Maybe they'd do it like Columbo. Oh, just just one more thing? With his thing in his neck. <laughs> Who'd that? Volnavia carrying the big tuba around yeah. behind him, everywhere. <laughs> oh, you know, did you notice, though, that sometimes he, he, he's plugged in and talking, and there's lots of times in this film he's not plugged in and he's still talking. Yeah, well, there's other things about that as well. We'll get to that. Okay, okay. Another plan that AIP Pictures had was to revive the Count Yorga character and have him become an adversary to Fives, which would have been interesting because Count Yorga was played by Robert Quarry. Yeah. And I've got a lovely, a lovely Blu-ray set of the, both the Count Yorga films. It's a very nice set. I'm sure you're surprised at that, aren't you? Surprised there's a nice Blu-ray set. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you would be. No. Uh, Terry Thomas uh, and... Peter Cushion and Beryl Reed all filmed their cameos in one day. Um, well, I love Terry Thomas, mm-hmm. but he stumbles through that scene. Do you think so? I think he's like fantastic in that scene. I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get there. But well, I thought there were moments when he seems to like lose the track of what he's saying and the lines. Do you not think that's how he's just playing it though? Like he's a little bit bumbling? Nope. I think it's the Parkinson's kicking in. <laughs> it's a bit early for the Parkinson's, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I can see what you mean because it, it, it feels like they're guiding him through it. Right. I can I can see what you mean. But um, the, the Beryl Reed one is fantastic as well. Yes, yes. I like the, well, I guess we'll get yeah. to it, but I was going to say I like the bit where she starts repeating yes. the words of the... Yes, it's very good. <laughs> the detective. Um, yeah. Peter Cushing's um, role was meant to be substantially bigger. Uh, he was going to be playing um, the Joseph Cotton role in the previous movie, but he had to leave because of his wife's failing health at the time. So uh, he did manage one day's work, as we say, on this, just to give him a little cameo, I think. Apparently there were 10 minutes cut from this film when it was released on the cinema. Do you know what they are? It was, I think they cut out Terry Thomas's cameo and they'd cut out Beryl Reed's and then um, Vincent Price had to record extra bits of dialogue to fill in the gaps great yeah I know those are two of the best bits in the movie they cut it out uh, apparently yeah. apparently Frankie Howard was asked to appear as well but he declined ooh really <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> hey now now titter nay oh don't don't don't, don't. how dare you ooh. Ooh. Oh, well, that was. Uh, yeah, what was that? <laughs> oh, sorry, that was just you enjoying yourself. It was. I was just. <laughs> I get all excited when I when I, we talk about Frankie Howard. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so let's leap into the film. The MGM lion roars in anticipation. Did you did you think Bond at first as well? Uh, no. I've seen the MGM lion roar in a lot of films besides Bond. I don't know why. I always think of Bond. When Whenever I... it roars. Mm. I in, see, the, I... in the same way that when, when I hear the 20th Century Fox logo, I think of Star Wars. I always think of Bond when I get the United Artists logo. Yeah, that, that does it for me as well. Okay. Well, I say it does it for me. I don't mean oh, yeah, in a yeah, sexual yeah. way or anything. Get excited by it. Yeah, no, no. no. Oh, no. That'd be a weird one, wouldn't it? That'd be a weird fetish. Just studio logos. Well, there's, there's something out there for everyone, Colin. Yeah. Are you going to the cinema? Yeah, but we have to arrive 10 minutes late after the Paramount logo because Paul, <laughs> you know, gets too excited when that mountain appears. Yeah, th- three seconds into the movie and it's all over for me. Matterhorn, you're telling me. <laughs> oh, is that your new one? <laughs> <laughs> That's a new <laughs> Yeah, it's just as bad as the first one. <laughs> Matter hard, you're telling me. I like it. It's good. Okay. Then we get the logo for American International. And then with a black screen, we get a narration. The incredible legends of the abominable Dr. Fives began a thought short years ago. All of them are unfortunately true. It was here, in London's fashionable Malden Square, whence... Fibes ventured out to work his diabolical revenge against those responsible for the death of his beloved wife, Victoria, and the destruction of his own face, making it necessary for him to talk for an ingenious Everybody knows what it is, anyway. And I was going to say, the narrator's got a great voice, but he's not going to patch on you, Colin, but then you messed it up, so... Yeah, ruined it, ruined it. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it, if they left that in the film? <laughs> you see him in the background going, going, oh, bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, let's just say it's kind of a previously on Dr. Fibes moment, isn't it? Yeah, for about the first half hour of the film. Well, there's not a lot to this film, so they've got to, you know, got to make up those numbers somewhere, haven't they? You know. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. As this narration goes on, we see Dr. Fibes messing around with a neck device and preparing some chemicals, looking at his wife. Then we hear Dr. Fibes' voice. My wife existed only six minutes on the operating table. You murdered her. When the acid reaches him, he will have a face like mine. Fibes pulls off his mask to reveal a hideous prosthetic. Sorry, sorry, a melted, badly disfigured visage. (laughs) Visage? Mm-hmm. Oh, like, like the 80s uh, electro pop outfit. What are they called Visage? They were called Visage, I think. Oh, can you do one of those songs? No. Okay. I have to say, I saw the I saw these Dr. Fives films probably when I was about eight, and that face freaked me out for weeks. What do you do now when you look in a mirror? <laughs> I'm over it. Uh, oh. It's good makeup, though, isn't it? Where are we now? We see clips from the film. <laughs> I think it's good anyway. We see clips from the first film. Mm-hmm. We do. We cut to a biplane plummeting to the ground. Inside, the pilot covered in scratches is fighting the tamest, most uninteresting-looking rats I've ever seen. Uh, we see the murders and clips from the first film, including the ending. In fact, this is all just a summing up of the first film, right? It is, it is. 
This finishes with Fibes and his wife, somewhere between life and death, hiding in a tomb in his building, and he's never found by the police. You're not, no. We cut to text on the screen that, in a font, looks like a sci-fi film. I think it's supposed to just look uh, gothic. It doesn't look gothic. It looks futuristic. You think so? Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Well, I never got that, but okay. I'll, f- I'll even fight you on it. Burchester in, in, in an arena. That's because you're really furry. That's why you said Burchester. You meant B-E-A-R. I did, yes. Yeah. It's my accent. And it yeah. says three years later. It does. And then we get narration that goes, Fibes, Lane Douglas for three years. Yeah, we know. It just said on screen. <laughs> why, why do we have a voiceover and text telling us the same thing? Uh, well, you've got to keep you've got to keep people interested, haven't you? Do they know that? Well, the people. Yeah, making the film. Uh, well, I suppose so. I suppose so. Yeah. The voice continues with some gibberish uh, until the mood coming into proper conjunction with the internal planet shown upon the golden moon of the crypt pulsing with a fantastic life of its own. Is this guy ever going to shut up? <laughs> no, I mean, which in theory is what our listeners often say. In, in all fairness to the movie, when you repeat it back to me now, it does sound like twaddle, yes. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Lifeblood then flowed back into fives. Great wheels and motors sprung into motion, which sounds exciting, but we just see a door opening. Yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> and Dr. Fibes once more walked upon the earth. The glass door of his coffin opens into a chanting chorus. We see Fibes awake and the credits continue. He cracks his neck and theatrically, all in white and hamming it up like nobody's business, appears to be on fire, but he's just sniffing some smoking incense that's been smouldering for three years. Well, maybe when all those wheels and cogs came into motion, it lit the, the you know, the incense burner as well, somehow. Because, I mean, he is a, an electrical genius to have built all this, isn't he? So when he was building all this, he's like, you know what this needs? Incense. Well, you know, he's a theatrical kind of guy, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. He does soft his organ. <laughs> how, many, how many of these are we going to have? I mean, I've got a few, so. <laughs> now, some of this organ plays sounds like the kind of thing that you'd hear in a 1970s strip club, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He hooks his neck device in and he starts, you know, droning away again. For three years I have rested. Bloody hell, we know. We've already been told in a voiceover and seen it on screen. I feel like I've been sitting here for three years already. <laughs> You know what it could be. You know, back in the day, in this, in like in in those days, you could you could come into the cinema at any point in the movie and stay there, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. So maybe they're just keeping the you know the information going for the people that didn't see the bit before, maybe came in ten minutes late or something. Oh, that explains a lot. All right. Okay. The glorious moon has risen to the exact position. Again, we already know this. Mm-hmm. The voiceover told us. He starts spouting on about Egypt and internal life. And then he calls on his aide, Volnavia. So Volnavia. Mm-hmm. Besides sounding like a hemorrhoid cream, what do you think she is? 
What do you mean? Like, is, is she like a figment of his imagination or is she an actual person? I mean, one of the problems is that she does a lot yeah. in this film. So, in fact, she does most of the work. So she can't be a figment of his imagination. Well, you know, like, like a Fight Club thing yeah, where yeah. we're seeing it as if a separate person, but really mm -hmm. it's just a manifestation of himself. But she does a lot of work. And yet, throughout the entire film, Fibes is just banging on about Victoria, who is just laying there for two films. Mm -hmm. That's right. You'd be kind of pissed off if you was Volnavia, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But I, I like to think of Volnavia, and I do like to think of Volnavia. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you do, yeah. yeah. Frequently. Um, but I like to, to, to think of her, I think that she's kind of a... And I know you're going to roll your eyes at me, but I think she's she's more of a supernatural entity in these movies that aids him. All right, yeah, I'm not rolling my eyes. It fits in with the film's okay. mystique. That that's the what that's the way that I see her anyway. And I think she takes. Right. I don't think she does care that he's going on about Victoria all the time because she seems to take a lot more pleasure in the killing than what she does than than what he does, Doctor Fives. Right. I think she's in it for for the fun of it all. And then she goes back, doesn't she, so, to whatever realm she comes from? So she just enjoys the the murdering. Part. Yeah, and the, the you know the craziness of it all and all of that. That's the way I see it, anyway. Hmm. All right, that's fair enough. Um, she appears as a ghostly image through a bead curtain, and with this aid, he is going to bring his wife back to life. Now, for some reason, only known to the drug-addled brain of the filmmakers, Volnavia is dancing in a kaleidoscope of glass as a female singer warbles her musical scales. That looked amazing. Yeah. You, 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 you're like, you're quite shiny object, aren't you? If it looks good, then you're happy. But if there's no depth or anything, it just looks good. Why does everything have to have depth, though? Doesn't, everything needs depth, does it? Well, that, that has to be a reason for something. Well, it was. It I mean, was... you might as well just be staring at a wallpaper if you're just liking things that look nice. I think it's more. I mean, I, I I like the whole kind of surreal thing that was that was in a lot of seventies movies, particularly a lot of British seventies movies, and and this film has got that. But I think this film has got that because they know they need something to fill up the fact that there's no script. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you could be right about that. Yeah, it doesn't take the fact away that it still looks great. Oh, no, yeah, it does look, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Visually, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, during this, Fives is playing the organ by not always pressing the keys. He doesn't mime it very well, Vincent, does he? No. no. He tells his assistant, but then maybe, like, Fives can't play the organ. Maybe it's just, like, you know, it's an automatic thing. It's all, it's all a, a performance. It would fit in with, with the robotic musicians that he has later, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah it would, yeah. Mm -hmm. He tells his assistant that there's an Egyptian map upstairs that they need. Although I said it in six words, Fibes takes about half an hour to get his point across. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think he put it quite like that, Colin. But <laughs> No, no, no. I, I should say, I, I find Price's way of speaking these lines to be quite irritating. Okay, okay. Thank you, my dear, for answering my call upstairs in my safe is a most precious map of papyrus that i will exterminate you i just i just 
I, I think he's kind of he's. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to play it as though he's speaking someone as someone that doesn't have a mouth, isn't he? He's got no lips, so he's yeah. No, he hasn't got lips, has he? He's got lips. I can see. No, them. but they're stuck on. They're not. He can't move them, can he? All he's right, got, all right. I he's, see what you're he's saying. Basically, yeah, yeah, a skull, yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't he, underneath it all? Skull. Yep, yep. So, so the. The voice is inside his head and the machine or device mm -hmm. is converting it into something that other people can yeah, hear. Yeah, that's the way that I see it. Yeah. It's pretty they didn't just make a little more effort into it, isn't it? Yeah, and, and as we said earlier, it's it's inconsistent as well. Right. And ironically, Five says, we must make haste. Well, if you'd stop embellishing your sentences like an eight-year-old <laughs> discovering poetry for the first time, we'd be done by now. <laughs> True, yeah. There's more dancing as the credits finish. Yeah, we're still getting credits at this point as well. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, he tells her that they should go upstairs and prepare for their journey. But now his assistant is dressed like Liz Truss on a Russian trip. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> very topical, yes. <laughs> both, both of them go up dressed one way and emerge at the top dressed another way. Have they borrowed Adam West's Batcave machine that when he goes up and they change, they change clothes as they're going up and down, don't they? Maybe it's the same magic that Supergirl uses. It's not magic. It's... I'm not getting into it. It's not magic. <laughs> <laughs> Don't begin a sentence. You can't finish. It's super speed. It's not magic. Mm. They've got mmm at me. People who wrote this film are on super speed, all right? You're probably right. Five suddenly sees the room as it really is. Rubble and devastation. Mm -hmm. It's destroyed. He becomes worried if the safe is still there. Uh, but he sees it, he makes his way down to it, he flings the safe open and finds the map missing. Who has taken it? Are you asking me? Nope. We cut to a snooker table that is in Beiderbeck's home. He has the map and reveals that it's useless without his knowledge and translation skills. And he hands it to a guy called Ambrose, who's an archaeologist who works with Beiderbeck. Ambrose says, ah, so this is the papyrus that I've read so much about. Yeah, yeah, Beiderbeck just told you and spent like you know minutes talking about it everything this, in this film is repeated numerous times there seems to be a lot of it going on yes Biderbeck reveals he got it after the house in Muldine Square was destroyed he picked it up from a dealer now we get a short shot of a man standing outside the window watching the two men inside and it's clearly Dr. Fibes mm -hmm. back inside Ambrose says this seems like a matter of life and death for you how does he come up with that? Beiderbeck doesn't seem to be driven emotionally by the map. If anything, he's quite calm, isn't he? Yeah. Hmm. Ambrose reveals that he has searched Egypt and looked up and down the whole valley and didn't find anything. Ah, Beiderbeck says, that was your mistake. You looked down. Did it not occur to you to look up? And we see Fibes still watching. Beiderbeck continues, the answer is in the stars, the moon. The sky's the key. While you look down, I look up. Beiderbeck shows Ambrose a copy of a map that is 5,000 years old and fragments that depict a temple called Eviscus. That's where they're going. Ambrose asks Beiderbeck, what does he hope to find there? Mm, not gold, but something more. They're interrupted by a woman called Diana telling Beiderbeck that they are late for dinner. He leaves to get changed. Ambrose asks Diana why she and Beiderbeck haven't married yet, 
where it's revealed that Beiderbecke is obsessed with whatever is in Egypt. He places the map in the safe, and they all leave for dinner, except for a bodyguard who stays to guard the map. So what do you think about Robert Quarry's performance, then? Oh, it's fine. I mean, he's got some terrible dialogue to chew through. <laughs> but he manages to do it quite well. He's quite a presence, yes. isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with him at all. Yeah, He, he had a lot of bad luck in his life, Robert Quarry. Oh, you could tell me? He just sat here. <laughs> he could, I was waiting for you to say, so, so what was that? That's like when you text me and you go, I watched a great film last night, and then that's all you text. <laughs> and then... And then you, you wait for me to go, what film did you watch? Like, why don't you just tell me? <laughs> All right, okay. Well, Ro- Robert, Robert Quarry was, uh, he was run over by a drunk driver in the 70s and had to have severe facial reconstruction. Then wow. in, in 1982, he was severely beaten and robbed. The muggers broke his knees, his ribs, and cheekbone. Jesus. And then soon after that, he had the first of his many heart attacks. Wow. Yeah. He also apparently had an IQ of 165 and completed high school at the age of 14. Interesting guy. Mm. And I think he was in the ser- he served as well, I think. He was uh, in the Navy or something, memory serves. Mm. So he had an interesting life. Not a lot of luck, but he had an interesting no, life. No, yeah. 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 It'd be, it'd be uh, interesting to read a biography. I think so, yeah. I don't know if there's one out there, but it's, I think it might be worth a look. Well, if there's not... That's your next job. All right, thanks. <laughs> All right. There'll be a market for that. Mm. The guard, now left alone, has a beer and plays a game of snooker. Well, you know, the master's out. You're going to enjoy yourself, aren't you? Yeah. He hears a buzzing, hissing sound. Under the table, he sees a snake, which he kills quickly with a snooker cue. Then another snake appears. He kills that one. Then he notices that the snake is clockwork. Mm. He lays it on the table, but then he sees another snake there. Thinking that this is also fake, he moves towards it. But this one is real. It bites him in the arm, and he kills the snake, then grabs a knife to cut the bite and suck out the venom. He runs to the phone. Why is he consistently making noises like he's playing the way of the exploding fist? (laughs) He doesn't have any lines, does he, either, this guy? He just goes, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> it does sound like that. Where does Dr. Fibes get all this stuff from as well? Yeah, not only where does he get it, when did he set up things that are going to happen? Mm-hmm. Did you notice, um, I-, I watched this on Blu-ray, and when the snakes are slithering on the, on the floor, they're, they're clearly real snakes, aren't they, that they've right. used? Yeah. Did you notice that all they've done is sellotape the clockwork bit to the snake? You could actually see the <laughs> you could see the sellotape see, yeah. on the on the clockwork bits. <laughs> Whose job is that? <laughs> yeah, you're like you're, you're like you're just like the young first day of the job you're at run and they're like, yeah. So what we want you to do is here's some sellotape, here's some like fake clockwork devices, and we just want you to uh, tape it onto those snakes over there. Enjoy. Say so what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all right. They've been they've been uh, defanged. I mean. I think they have. I mean, they haven't bitten anyone yet. It was the 70s, so, I mean, who knows? <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. Don't worry, there's an, there's an ambulance standing by, just in case. Weren't ambulance... Uh, I mean, they weren't like paramedics, I know. Well, they, they literally were just people that picked you up, stuck you on a stretch, and chucked you in the back of the ambulance, weren't they, in the 70s? Yeah, and 
Yeah, and drives as fast as you can with your bell going. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah. That was all the job was. Yeah. But, but Paul, you're, you're thinking the ambulance is there for the, the young runner. The ambulance is there for the snake. You can't get snakes out easily on a, such a low budget. <laughs> Those snakes are injured. you got to rush them to the vet. They were pampered snakes, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Runners are two a dozen. Fair enough. Okay. Ah, so the guard places the old phone earpiece to his ear and a blade fires out going through his head. <laughs> Do you think that the writers came up with the deaths? They came up with invented deaths first and then built the story around the deaths. Oh, like a James Bond writer coming up with the device and working backwards and how to put it into the film. Exactly like that, yeah. That's possible, yeah. yeah. I, think it, I yeah. think there was some of that going on. So now um, Fives and his assistant enter and she starts to clean up the mess as Fives breaks into the safe and takes out the map. Then there's another scene of uh, Fives telling us what his plan is again. He's talking to his wife, isn't he? His dead wife. Yeah. Did yeah. you notice who the dead yeah. wife is played by? Yes. Caroline Monroe. Yes. It's an easy gig for her, wasn't it? Yeah, because she just appears... Dead. In dead. Yeah. yeah, she doesn't have to move or anything. That's a great gig. You'd like that gig, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if I could do the podcast and not actually do anything, that'd be amazing. Well, well <laughs> just like 92 other podcasts, but all right, when are you going to stare? <laughs> I, knew you, you I knew you'd say that. <laughs> Boom. End, end of the episode. <laughs> if you don't get that joke, see previous episodes. Yeah. <laughs> We cut to uh, Detective Inspector Trout in Beidebeck's house searching for clues. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he stood next to the body of the dead bodyguard. Has he any known relatives in this country, sir? It would seem most unlikely, replies Beidebeck, which is an odd reply. Yeah, it is a bit strange. Well, yeah. Beidebeck doesn't care. All he's worried about is the papyrus. Trout is annoyed by Beidebeck's reaction. Find the papyrus and you'll find the killer, says Beidebeck. Well, find the papyrus first. You have 24 hours. Or what? <laughs> and where did he pull that number from? Also, what the fuck's he going to do with him? What's he controlling? That is true, yes. If I was Trout, I would have been like, oh, what? What, what happens if I do take 26 hours? What mm. are you going to do about it, sunshine? But Trout continues, who knew that you had the papyrus? Beidebeck says he made no secret about having it, but it's only of interest to certain scholars, and they are above suspicion. He believes Trout should be fishing for a common thief. But as Trout points out, having killed a man by piercing his skull with a golden snake is not a common thief. Can you have an uncommon thief? Yeah. Like Raffles would be an uncommon thief, wouldn't he? Ah, right. Is that that what it refers to then when you say a common thief? Yeah, a common thief is like your average Caesar house, it's empty, burgles it, but an uncommon thief, although I don't think people use that phrase, is someone who specialises. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you for that. I I always wondered. I always wondered what that meant. Oh, now you can use it. In what? Life. (laughs) (laughs) Because it comes up a lot. All right. (laughs) It does, yeah. When, All right. when you do, when you, did you just get tired of people calling you a common thief? No, I mean, if any, I'd be an uncommon thief, wouldn't I? Why? 
because um, I, you know, if I was if I was going to pull a caper, I, it would be a special one, wouldn't it? It would involve wires and pulleys and. Why would it involve like wires and pulleys? You know, I'd I'd lower myself down from the ceiling, you know, James Bond oh, style. Jesus, that's a hell of a pulley. <laughs> well, go on. You're, you're, you're working it. Oh. <laughs> you're, you're at the yeah. top. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> After five seconds, I'll be like, uh, yeah, forget this. <laughs> Just see you. <laughs> <laughs> Why <are> you? <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoops. <laughs> No, you could see you could I could I, you could see me in a in a tight black um you know outfit with a balaclava on my head coming down on a wire pulley over the top of a, a glass case with a diamond in it. That'd be the kind of job I'd do. I mean Sorry, I'm not, I, just in case there's any police sort of listening no, I, to this. I just got queasy at the mention of tight black suit. Sorry. <laughs> It's very slimming, black, you know. Well, you do cut the glass of your nipples. I mean, in fairness, that would be uncommon. That would be very uncommon, yes. Well, what's this, what's this feast of MO? Well, he appears to uh, cut the glass cases with his nipples. Hmm, a specialist and no mistake. That would make for some interesting security footage. Yeah, instead of raffles, you'd just be called nipples. <laughs> you imagine that on Crime Watch? Yeah. Who, who could play me? Johnny Vegas. Johnny Vegas. <laughs> yeah, all right. Anyway. Oh, I, you won't be burgle this place. I don't talk like that. No, but, but well, you say that. <laughs> you just put on this accent when you're doing the podcast. No, this is this is all... Actually, I was going to say this is all true, but I don't want to say that, do I? <laughs> Excellent. That, that's that's a bit I need to cut out and keep. Yeah, yeah. Isolate that bit. <laughs> Isolate that. All right. Yeah, all yeah. right. Anyway, back to Dr. Fibes, eh? Actually, back to the Trout, because he says that this is obviously the work of uh, a person who knows the real value of the map. Mm -hmm. So we cut to Fibes, spelting on a bit again. Secret doors, new life, blah, blah, blah. He then uh, gets ready to uh, leave and entombs his wife safe in a sealed abode, which is lit up like a holiday tram at Blackpool. It, yeah, it looks like she's in a, a, you know, a box that an action figure would come in. Yeah, I mean, I guess she is in a way. What an action figure! Well, that's how she's treated in the film. I suppose posable. How many how many points of articulation do you think she's got? I mean, she's been dead for a while, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Does your points of articulation change when you die? Well, you stiffen up, don't you? So, yeah. so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, don't hang around you'll, at more. You'll trees. find out. <laughs> oh, cheers. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and they sail for Egypt. On the deck of the ship, they dance. Yeah, we just cut to them dancing on the ship. It, it's either economical genius the way this is written or it's badly structured i think that that's a summation of the whole film isn't it <laughs> put that on a poster yeah both those points all right <laughs> can be argued okay later whilst full navy is on deck we see diana pass her by so now we know that by beck diana and fibes and uh full navy are on the same ship mm-hmm 
Fibes watches a projector in his cabin. Although the image on the screen is a photograph, not a piece of film. So I'm not sure what he's projecting. Uh, yeah, I think you're just supposed to go with it. All right. And he gibbers on a bit about Victoria. Well, he, he does that for the most of the film, doesn't he? He does, really, yeah. yeah. We cut to Beidebeck writing about taking three drops of his elixir of life and that if he fails in Egypt, then he is doomed. Who's he writing to? He's keeping a journal, isn't he? No, it's just a piece of paper. It's not even a book. Maybe he's going he's gonna to put them all into a, uh, into a book later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's just, just bits of paper everywhere. Unless he's leaving a record for Diana. Oh. Could be doing that. Yeah, it could be. That's nice of him. Mm. Although he's not planning I mean, on dying at any time soon, is he? So I don't know why he's leaving a record for her. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't tell her anything, so... No. It seems strange to write to her about it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll stick with the journal thing. Makes more okay. sense. Okay. He's interrupted by Ambrose entering the cabin, reading out loud from the Book of the Dead. Yeah. We cut to Fibes talking to Volnavia. Where, where did Fibes get money for this luxury cabin? He's he's probably got bank accounts all over the place, hasn't he? Really? Yeah. He, you know, he's a okay. he, well, he was a doctor. Of what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just stick with doctor. He was a doctor. Let's not ah, dwell on it too right. Again, Fibes starts telling us stuff that we already know. Although. He does finish with a quote from 1987 Starship classic, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. What does he say? Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Yeah, but what does he say? Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Yeah, but what does he say? Nothing's Going to Stop Us Now. <laughs> you know, we can keep this going That's forever. what he says. That's oh, the final oh, right, line. Okay. All right, okay. Right. Uh, 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 this is one of the points where I noticed that he's not actually plugged into anything as well. Well, maybe this is an internal monologue. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, that works. We then cut to Beidebeck and Ambrose. Beidebeck is explained to Ambrose that while roads and sand shift and change, the sky remains the same. Oh, that's right. He's repeating the earlier scenes. Do you know, I, I, I never thought about any of this until you're saying it now, but all right. It's just the same bloody conversation, but different words. Okay. Ambrose wants to know what Beidebeck really wants. Beidebeck says he needs a model of the mountain to show Ambrose. Why, why doesn't just buy the back? Tell him. Why does he need the magic? Just tell him. Yeah, I, I, it's got the elixir of life. That's what I need. I thought just that tell as well. Him. I thought that as well. Yeah, yeah. Ambrose leaves to get it. Abideback says, "Ambrose, I forbid you to tell anybody about this conversation." What? He didn't say anything. He hasn't told anybody anything. He's just blathered on about sky not changing. <laughs> Ambrose is like, "Yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to tell anybody about this shit. It's pointless." Maybe he's hoping that, you know, the payoff is going to be like this huge thing. So he wants to make sure he keeps it on the down low, you know. All right. As Ambrose leaves, he bumps into Diana, who's been listening at the door. She has. It's rude. Yeah. Although she's heard nothing of interest. <laughs> she, she should have stuck around earlier. She'd have heard it all before anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ambrose is in the hold looking for the model with one of the sailors. They see a large model of a gin bottle surrounded by models of women. Looks like a promotional art piece. Mm -hmm. Ambrose finds what he's looking for and the sailor leaves him alone. What the hell? Says Ambrose as he sees Victoria in her tube. 
He turns on the machine and Wurlitzer music starts playing and lights flashing. Why is he taking this with him? I... <laughs> Why? Because he doesn't need it. Because later he's, he's already got one in the tomb in his lair, hasn't he? He doesn't. Yeah. It's not the same one. No. I don't know why he takes it with him. Plus the fact, why you'd cover Maybe she up has the to box. travel in it? Maybe, but you'd cover up the box at least, wouldn't you? That she's in. Yeah, yeah. It's just sat on the, the deck. Yeah, and turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll make it all that bit non-functioning. Don't mm-hmm. need the music. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Because then mannequins are playing music. Ambrose turns, and as the horn on the ship sounds, vibes. Five strangles him, then throws him over the side. Yeah, but does it, sh- they, they don't, it doesn't show it because they don't want to spoil the gag that you're going to get in a minute. That's yeah. right, yeah. There's a knock on Bidebeck's door. The captain enters and tells Bidebeck that they have searched the ship and cannot find Ambrose. While he feels it's hopeless, they will continue to search. Bidebeck wants them to stop searching and continue to Egypt, but the captain refuses. Why do I get the feeling that this is how you'd handle my disappearing on you? Oh, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? But we need to get on. So, come on. <laughs> Let's just get on, though. I'll be like, he's a big lad. He'll float. Well, you mean I'll puff my cheeks out? Is that what you're saying? What, your botty cheeks? <laughs> Possibly. Depends what I've eaten. Is, you know. is that how you swim? Do you propel yourself? <laughs> no, ask first. That's weird. <laughs> That's not right. It's even weirder if you saw it. We then see some fishermen finding Ambrose's body stuffed into the giant model gin bottle that was floating next to their boat. That's the way you'd like to go, right? Not in an empty one. Oh, no, no, you'd drink it all. Then it'd be empty. Would you get me in a bottle? A giant one. It'd have to be a big one. (laughs) (laughs) It's not exactly what I was going for, but all right. (laughs) Why? Why? What were you going for? No, I just meant, you know... How did he get him in that bottle? Well, how do you get a ship in a bottle? Uh, I presume that you, you you make the bottle around the ship, don't you? Is that not how it works? I don't know how it works. I've never done it. All right, Colin, go on. How do you, how do you put a ship in a bottle? You just put it in. But it's bigger than the bottle. Ship's so not. You... And then you, then you unfold the masts when it's inside with a little peg. Oh, do you? Mm. Oh, all right. Well, I didn't know that. But yeah. how do you how do you get how do you get a full size person through the neck of a bottle? How did Doctor Fives get 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 him through the neck of the bottle into the bottle? Crushed his bones. All right, fair enough. There's nothing he in this cr- film to disprove that. So no, no, he crushed his bones, pushed him through the opening. So he turned him into a kind of loose paste held together by skin. Is what you're saying? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a lot of work. Well, it does do things that are a lot of work later in this. Film. Yes. In fact, all of his murders are generally involve a lot of actual work. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. A gun would be quicker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We cut to Scotland Yard. Why are there apples everywhere? I was going to say, who puts their apples on a windowsill? They're not just on the windowsill. They're on the mantelpiece behind him in a row as well. Do you think that either the writers or the actors themselves, because a lot of the a lot of the characters in this have got quirks, haven't they? Yeah. 
you think that that's just something that the writers added, or do you think that it came that's something that people came up with on the day, or must be writers, right? Well, you wouldn't just get some apples. Well, if that is then true, it, then it's in, it's interesting because the actor takes one from the windowsill mm. and then places it with the others on the mantelpiece. See, that's what I like about about these two films, and they do it in the other one as well. Although they, as I said before, they ramp it up more in this one. Are all the little quirks and idiosyncrasies that the characters mm-hmm. have? There's right. no need to put all this in there, but but they do. And I know you're arguing that well, it's because there's there's very little to to the film, so you have to fill it up with something. But at least it's there. Yeah, you know? and I, I was a bit confused because at first they looked like tomatoes rather than apples. Yeah, because they're little small ones, aren't they? They're not very yeah. big ones. Yeah, I assume they're they must be apples, right? I, they, I think they were apples. Yeah. Trout enters the room and is uh, immediately shouted at by Superintendent Waverley, putting him in his place. It's the report on the murder at Biderbeck's house, but Trout says he's been out on another incident. A man's body washed up on shore, but this time the body was in a bottle, so they found Ambrose. Mm-hmm. We cut to Fibes and Vulnavia. Vulnavia. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Eating. Because of Fibes injury, he's supposed to eat and drink for an aperture in his neck. But it's obvious he's just put the food behind his head and tipping it on the floor. In fact, you see it fall off at one point. <laughs> oh, dear, I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a funny gag, though, that he has to eat through his neck. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Don't we discover that they're doing this in a small tent on a mountain for some reason? That they must have taken up there. Yeah. Mm. All the way, they climbed up that steep... Or a mountain. No. Mm-hmm. And then put the, instead put the of just all the land that's around. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah. looks good. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he um, also get a, a fishbone stuck in his throat and he has to cough it out? Yeah, then he takes it out mm-hmm. with his fingers from the side. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously just down his collar and his jacket. But I know, but I still think it's, I think it's, I mean, it's almost like something, it is a comedy, isn't it? There's a couple of, Things like that, like earlier in the film when the guy is killed with the uh, blade that comes from the phone through the man's head. When Five sees him, he puts his finger in his ear as if to clear his ears. Yeah, I like all that stuff. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, wish the, I wish the listeners could see your face when you said that. <laughs> yeah, no, that stuff's fine. Okay. I like that stuff. All right. uh, he steps into his ancient cavernous home that appears to have electric lighting and a power source for his organ. Well, everyone needs a power source for their organ, don't they? My- where's, where's his from, then? In this ancient Egyptian cavern Maybe he, powering he, all his lights. He installed it earlier. He's an electrical genius again, isn't he? He said he did this all ah. earlier, didn't he? Yeah. Although my, yeah. The, the power source for my organ is HP. Is it? Yeah. Your, your organ is on higher purchase. <laughs> no, just rented it. No, the power source, Colin, HP. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just not even <clears throat> pretending no? I'm hearing it. No, all right. I'm just ignoring it. Okay. No. <clears throat> Why does he need the map? What, to a place that he's already found? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you've got me there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of that. Clearly, they didn't either. So, okay. No, because he's, he, I mean, everything, he knows about everything that's going to come up, doesn't he? 
He knows about the waters. Yeah. He knows about the secret room. He knows about the sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. He knows how to get to the sarcophagus. He clearly knows about the yeah. key that he finds. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Unveil the band, he says. Sheets are removed and mechanical men are revealed at a drum kit. I get the feeling that they only stuck this in because it was in the first film and people liked it. It's like it's like a greatest hits, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Back at Scotland Yard, Lombardo has arrived. He's the shipping agent and he's annoyed about being dragged there on a Saturday afternoon. They tell Lombardo that they found Ambrose and they think he was murdered. Lombardo says that Ambrose was an archaeologist and they ask him about any of the other passages and if they were odd. Well, Lombardo says, well, they're, they're all odd-ish. But he can't help any further and he's ushered out. But just as he leaves, in passing, he mentions that on the ship that Ambrose was on, one of the passengers wanted an organ brought on board. Trout stops him from leaving. Waverley asks if the passenger's name was Fibes, but Lombardo says it was Smith. Waverley is relieved until Lombardo says the passenger also wanted clockwork musicians and that Lombardo says the passenger just paid for one way. Waverley wonders if that means he's not coming back, but Trout is less happy. It's Fibes all right, and he always comes back. I, I love this scene with Terry Thomas. I know you, you, you have your doubts about it, but I, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Nobody says lines like, well, you've bloody well found one, quite the same way as Terry Thomas does it. Oh, don't get me wrong. I like it, and I love Terry Thomas. Don't, don't. I'm no problem with the scene. I'm just watching the scene for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I noticed the little you felt, little things going on, and I wondered about. You felt it. he was struggling a little bit. I yeah, and I don't like saying that because I like the guy. Um, did you did you ever see that um, terrible Johnny Depp movie from a few years ago where he's doing his worst Terry Thomas impression Can- that you've ever seen? Can you narrow it down? <laughs> I think it was called Mordecai. Oh, yes, I have yeah. seen it. Yeah. Yeah, great film. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's nice that he clearly loves Terry Thomas as much as we do, that he wanted to completely, you know, pastiche his performances. In, 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 and right. and he, he's, he, he's obviously, he knows Terry Thomas as, a, as a, you know, his performances in films. But right. it's Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah. You, you know the books, right? It's a series. Yeah, of books. but I mean, I mean, does it say in the books that he, he acts like Terry Thomas? It probably doesn't, does it? It doesn't, but the character is kind of like that. He, I mean, you, you've got to admit it's a conscious decision that he's trying to play it like Terry Thomas. Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. I'd yeah. rather have seen Terry Thomas do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally mm-hmm. agree. We cut to Volnavia painting a mural overseen by Fibes. Yes. Oh, that's the end of that scene. Back at Scotland Yard. <laughs> that is it, isn't it? The, There's no point to that scene yep, at all, is there? Nope. They re-enter Waverley's office and find Miss Ambrose waiting for them. She's the cousin of the murdered Harry Ambrose. She tells them that the map is wrong about where Bidebeck and Ambrose were going, and she shows them the correct place. It's Beryl Reed. It is, yeah. And like we said before, it's a nice little turn. It is. It's very good. And I did like how when they walk in and they see her when she's asleep and Trout kind of suggests that that she could be, you know, is she one of yours, sir? And he's like (laughs) really affronted, isn't he? Like, what? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Beidebeck arrives at the base camp and is annoyed that everybody are not there. Some of them have gone off to explore the mountain. Beidebeck says no man should go to the mountain alone. Back with Fibes, he's still playing his organ and he's now barring a bird of prey that is somehow in the caves. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that got there, but all right. Maybe he went out and got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the bird of prey shop. That's right. In the middle of nowhere, yeah. in the desert. Yeah. 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 There's always one. Yeah, how much? You know what you are? You're a bleeding vulture. Uh, no eagle. <laughs> Outside, we see Shavers, who seems unequipped to be exploring caverns, really. He's just... No, he's not got any equipment with him. <laughs> he's got nothing. Uh, and and my, when when he when he popped up, my first in my head, my first thought was, "Oh look, it's Regan." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because at one point he goes, "Oi, we're the Sweeney. We have dinner, dinner. Get your pants on. You're nicked." It doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't say anything at all. Uh, Shaver sees an opening in the caves, and he moves some rocks and takes out a lantern. Did he hide? The lantern there. Uh, that's that's what I thought. I thought maybe he'd been before, and now he's he's to, for when he goes back. He stashed it for when he goes back to try and just steal what he can for himself. So yeah, so that's his idea. Is that I think he's so. going to get the gold? Right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he explores deeper. He places his ear against the rocks, and he can hear organ music, and then goes in further. I'm sorry, but if I was exploring some Egyptian caves. Mm -hmm. And I put my ear against the rocks and I start to hear Wurlitzer music. I'm out. I'm You're gone. Out. <laughs> yeah. Like, the fuck's going on there? It might be different if you were a fan of Wurlitzer music. Oh, you, you, maybe. Yeah. yeah You're attracted you to, to, it. to it. Yeah. Draw you to it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair there's, enough. There's yeah. nothing in the script. I mean, there's nothing in the script, but there's nothing in the script to suggest that he's not a fan of Wurlitzer music. No. No. He senses something does but before he could do anything he's ripped asunder by the talons of the bird of prey he falls over and the lantern shatters on the floor the bird feasts on his body and that's the end of him yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think John Ford was fairly well known at this point he'd done red cap yeah it's, a, a, it's, a, of, like... it's a weird use of him isn't it yeah. This could have been anybody, yeah. any actor, really, couldn't it? Yep. Hmm. <laughs> Do you think that they, so that they could, starring John Thor, <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's sell it. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'd like to see a poster, original poster, yeah. see if it's got those names <laughs> on it. Yeah. Uh, when his bird returns, Fibes asks if he's had a good dinner, and then he opens a secret compartment. Oh, I forgot to mention to you that I've actually worked with Vincent Price. Really? When was this? Yeah. Oh, it was a while ago. We did a Western called The Gambler together. Where can I find this? Oh, well, I'll, I'll see if I can dig up a clip for you. Yeah, here you go. Three queens, aces up. Mighty slick with the pace bar, don't you, mister? I'm afraid I didn't get your name. Call me Duke. I used to have a lovely dog called Duke, brown furry friend. Many a night we spent together, then he passed away. Had him stuffed and turned into a gun rack. Holds my Smith & Wesson 45 in his mouth and the ammo goes right up. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, can we have a private conflab in my office? Pardon me, gentlemen. Management of this establishment requests the pleasure of an audience. 
Keep my chair warm, huh? I'll bring it all back. It's not that I don't trust you. All right. Pardon me, boy. Well, where to, mister? In there, my office. After you. Thank you. Oh. Well, hello. I take it you know the young lady. Yeah, we met in New Orleans, wasn't it? No. Blackpool. That's right, it was. Yeah, pleasure, ma'am. Maybe for you. Pardon me. So you know I invited you inside? I might have an idea. You're a cheat, mister, pure and simple. You're a cat shop and you're not wanted in these parts. I'm a gambler, but I'm not as sharp as you put it. Reasonably cunning, knowledge of the odds and a watchful eye on the cards. It's all a gambler needs. Never cheated a soul. You took $1,400 from my men. I don't like it. Now I'll trouble you for the money. What for? Why should I... Because I say you should. You cheated my boys out of that money, they're gonna get it back. Oh, I've killed men for less. I'll trouble you for your pistol, too. Listen, mister, whatever your name is. Mike. Mike Sloan. Listen, Mr. Sloan. In the first place, I do not carry a gun of any kind. You're welcome to search me. In the second place, I'm an honest gambler. Ask your lady friend. That's right, Mike. He's never cheated in his life. Pay attention to the lady and save yourself a peck of trouble. Well, you must know him pretty well, Miss Pearl. She knows me. That's enough. Then why was she the one who told me to bring you in here? That's for her to answer. I couldn't tell you, Mike. Jake and Harry were fixing to kill him. I saw it and I, I thought it best to stop the game. He's too clever for them. Jake handed a gun under the table. Duke wasn't cheating. He's just good. She's right, I am. You expect me to believe that? It's truth. Shut up, you. Well, Pearl? Maybe the lady prefers not to answer. There's something between you two. What is it? Nothing between us. Well, Duke, should mention there's a table, a cuckoo clock, a sabutio set with half the players missing, and a mashed potato based buster Liberace between us. No, pal. It's not necessary. Well, it's there. He's as leave kill you as look at you. You don't know, Duke, what makes the law in this town. You wouldn't stand a chance. Look, Mr. Sloan, I'm preparing to leave. You might as well know that. With the money. If you prefer I leave your fair city, I shall, but I shall leave with my fair winnings. No. No, Duke, you can't. You can't leave. Well, look who's joined the chorus. There's no chorus here. We don't have the budget. What is this? What's he to you anyway? He's... He's... Pearl. A pearl? No. Why would he be a pearl? That would be weird. He was my husband. You had a husband called Pearl? Wait, you mean this guy's... Oh, so that's why. Yeah, too bad, Pearl. You should never have said that. You seem to have made the big man angry. No telling what he may do now. I might get ornery. Horny? Seems a strange time. No, no, ornery, angry. I might kill you, Duke. That's what I might do. Oh? Is that a cucumber, Duke? <laughs> oh, it's not a cucumber. Don't worry. He uh, ain't hurt. I am a little. It, it kind of stings. Bleeds a lot at first, but it's only a crease. Still hurts. You said you didn't carry a gun. Oh, no. I said I wasn't a cheater. Didn't say I wasn't a liar. I should have read the script. There's a script? You should have searched me. This pistol is a tiny thing, but it does the job. Pick up his gun, Pearl. Hand it to me. That's better. Where are you going? Where else? To find another town, another game. I'll go with you. Not a chance. You're better off here. You never did like being a gambler's wife, and the situation hasn't changed. I'm still a gambler, and I always will be. It's the only job I know. 
Bye, Pearl. Pleasure to have met you, Mike. Pleasure's all yours. Really. Pearl, if I die, I want to be stuffed and mounted alongside my dog. Oh, Mike, I could turn you into a gun rack. Oh, Pearl, you say the sweetest things. Well, that was possibly the most dramatic scene I've ever heard, Colin. That was amazing. You should get out, Ma. You're probably right. Back to Dr. Fibes. So Fibes goes over to Volnavia, who is holding what looks like a huge tuba. You, you like a girl that can handle a big instrument, Colin, right? Right? I do, but it, it, it's a sousaphone, not a tuba. It looked like a tuba. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a big brass person like you. Are you, you not? I, I've heard you like a bit of brass. <laughs> I like rubbing it. Oh, do you? Yeah, you've got to polish it occasionally. Yeah, a bit uh, of brass, though. If I mention tubers again in this, uh, in the rest of this podcast, you're not going to correct me every time, are you? I mean, no, the, no. The, the well, yeah, yeah, I will, but I'll do a different instrument each time. <laughs> I'm not going to know, am I? <laughs> no, I know. Five plugs himself in and tells her that the doorway leads to a secret room. Another one. Yeah, so hold on. So we've got another secret compartment in a room that has a secret compartment in a secret cavern in the middle of a secret place in the desert. That's right. Keep up. All right. Now, this one is normally flooded. Bad plumbing. But now that the moon is in the correct position, they've receded underground. They go inside uh, where there's a big sarcophagus. He pulls a handle shaped like a snake and it opens, revealing dust and a few bones. Oh. He then turns the handle another way, revealing a secret compartment and then a secret key. A lot of secrets going on. There's a lot of secrets going on. You're telling me that no one's ever found this? Yeah, well, I'm not telling you that. The writers of the story <laughs> are. Oh, okay, just just clarify. Anyway, he replaces it all for now. Bidebeck reaches the cave to find that Hackett and another man called Stuart are there. Bidebeck is angry, but Stuart tells him that he doesn't need his permission to be there. Right. Bidebeck yeah. then reads them the riot act. Another man named Baker sarcastically asks Bidebeck if this mountain belongs to him. Bidebeck responds that he regards it to be so. Yeah, Bidebeck Mountain. Mountain what? Whatever he wants. Fair enough, fair enough. Speaking of which, outside Diana sees... Do you remember Diana? She was in the movie earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember her, yeah. She sees something shining in the dirt. She brushes the sand aside, revealing John Thor's... I presume it's John Thor. His hideous corpse, his eyes and face have been eaten away. Ooh. Mm. They are the best bits. What, the eyes and the face? Yeah, yeah. If you're going to he- eat somebody, those are the best bits, right? Well, you, you go for the soft bits, don't you? Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, you do at your age for your teeth. There's nothing worse than chewy. No. Seriously. Diana runs into the cave and tells the men that she's had a little discovery of her own, and they go and look. I like her reaction. It's so sort of comically English, isn't it? She's quite calm about it. Yeah, it's good that she doesn't scream the place down. Yeah, yeah. She's she's quite a, I wouldn't say well-written character because there's nothing to her, but I think the actress plays it in a way where it feels like there's more to her than what's actually probably on the page. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they head out. 
But as they head out, one of the skulls on the ground opens its eyes and laughs. It's Fibes' head poking out. He's been watching them all the time. Yeah. Fibes heads back to his secret lair, and with Volnavia's help, he begins to reattach his face. This, I think, is another greatest hits moment. Yeah, they do that in the previous movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bidebeck goes to comfort Diana, but she's made of much sterner stuff than that. She's aware that Bidebeck doesn't trust her and tells him that his entire attitude has changed. She wants to know why the mountain has such a hold over him. He wishes that he could tell her, but he just can't. Why? Because he doesn't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, didn't expect that answer, yeah, but fair yeah, enough. They haven't written that, they don't know. Back at the Lur, Volnavia is doing strange things to the headpiece of Victoria's coffin as they wheel it out. She's kind of stroking it and polishing it and, you know. I, I, I see a future where Volnavia kills Victoria. And, and has fives for, him, for herself. Well, she, she's all about the boning. He's got like a skull for a face. Colin. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> These things just come to me, Colin. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Is that going to be your uh, defense in court? <laughs> well, these, they, they just come to me, Your Honor. So, so. Sorry, Your Honor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. These things just come to me. <laughs> it might work. I didn't know she was a nun. These things just come to me. <laughs> Why does it always come back to nuns and monks on this show? I, I don't know. We're just very religious. So they wheel the coffin out, accompanied by some kind of modern dancing from Volnavia. She likes a bit of dancing, doesn't she? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, she spends a lot of the film just gyrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I lost my place then. Fibes transfers Victoria's body to the ancient sarcophagus, telling her that he will eliminate everyone who stands against them. That when the waters once flow into the cave again, her life will be restored. Mm. That was my reaction as well. <laughs> <laughs> Outside, the two men, Baker and Stuart, are... Uh, Let's face it, they're just perving over the silhouette of Diana inside her tent, undressing. This reminded yep. me of that Carry On movie that we did. Was it Carry On Up the Jungle? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yep. It's almost yep. the same sort of scene, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Although, that's one of our unlistenable episodes. Yeah, it was, it was a bad recording, that one, wasn't it? But Bidebeck disturbs them and tells them to go unload Hackett's truck. Bidebeck, dressed in a nifty dressing gown, Kisses Diana and tells her that she will learn everything tomorrow. Why don't you just tell her now? I, I just like the fact that he's they're, they're, they're camped out in the middle of whatever country it is they're supposed to be in. They're in a desert. Yeah. And, and he takes the time to put on his uh, nice dressing gown. It's the 70s. You've got to dress properly. You've got to dress for dinner. It's not dress the 70s. It's the 1920s, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, sorry. I was thinking about the production rather mm -hmm. than the actual story. Well, then that's even more of a reason for dressing. I mean, so, again, it's, though, it's a nice little character quirk because he's, he, he's quite, he's quite um, smooth, isn't he, and suave. By yeah, Jack, you know? yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be funny if he's like, the next day, he's like, okay, he's like, I'm going to tell you everything that's going on. And she's just like, you know what? I don't care now. <laughs> that would be a good moment. <laughs> he's yeah. like, but... 
But, nah, you know, you strung me along for so long. I'm sitting in a desert. There's sand everywhere. I don't care. But it, but it's interesting. You, you're going to want to hear it. No, no. i got other stuff to do. Outside, Stuart follows an eerie vision of Volnavia dancing in the sand dunes. She's dancing again. She, she got lots of ears? <laughs> no, eerie, Colin. Eerie. Oh, spooky, sorry. Spooky, spooky. Oh, she, right. She leads him on into a tent as Fibes, now dressed like Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Why does it always come back to the labias? I don't know. <laughs> You're fixated today. <laughs> she leads him on. She leads him on into a tent as Fibes, now dressed like Lawrence of Arabia, watches from the shadows. She leads Stuart to a chair shaped like a scorpion. Sorry, but right there, that's your first warning sign, right? What, a church shaped like a scorpion? Yeah, you're not sitting on that shit. So I'm guessing that this is another one of Fibes' uh, magically made pieces of equipment. Don't worry about it, he's bringing much worse in a minute. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. Suddenly, Fibes flips a switch and the pincers come down, trapping Stuart's arms. On the floor... It's a gramophone and a porcelain dog. Wasn't that the HMV logo? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. And, and Fives drops the key to the chair inside the dog and then leaves with Volnavia. Stuart struggles to smash the dog, revealing the key inside, but he also sets loose a collection of actual scorpions. Ooh. He tries to stamp on them, but they crawl up his body. And as he screams in agony and dies, Volnavia serenades Fibes on a violin. Nice. And you know they couldn't resist the showing one scorpion going in his pants. Oh, yeah, you've got to do that. It was the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we cut to Trout and Waverley, lost in the desert. Why are the Scotland Yard police now in Egypt? Well, they're obsessed with Fibes, aren't they? They want him. Who's paying for this trip? <laughs> Maybe they went on holiday together. Maybe they did it that way. <laughs> you know. they, they're like, like, I'm taking some time off. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You've got two weeks off. Don't go investigating the crime. N nudge, nudge. It, it's like when M sort of takes Bond off a case and then says, any ideas of where you're going to go on vacation? Oh, I might try. Right. <laughs> Except Bond doesn't usually take his boss with him. That is true. That is true. That would be weird. That, that it would be weird <laughs> if like Bond like gets off the plane and Ebb's waiting for him dressed in like summer gear. <laughs> that would that would be an image. I just find I just find a tag along, James. I mean, you always seem to have such a great time. They should have done that in Roger Moore's era. It would have been a great movie that. I mean, that's the only Bond yeah, yeah. era that you could have done it in, I think. <laughs> it is, yeah. Do you think you know where we are? asks Trout. I don't think I know, Waverly tells him. I don't think you know either, sir, replies Trout. Come on, that's a good that's a good little exchange of lines there. Yeah, yeah. They consult their map, and Waverly muses at which direction England is in. You know, they do the whole, oh, just over that way is good old England, isn't it? You know, because yep, I suppose at this point do. we were still ruling most of the world, weren't we? Not really, but... You know, they're clinging on to the past. Yeah, we, we kind of thought we still did at this point in history, I would imagine. Wow, okay. I mean, they think so, that they... It's a conversation for a different podcast. Right. 
Waverly says that we can ask directions, and they see someone off in the distance. They climb into the car and set off. Biderbeck and Hackett head back to the cave. He's anxious because he's heard that the men have broken through a wall and found a gold sarcophagus. This is one of those moments that feels like there's something missing. Why? Because it, it's like... I think the line where he says that they've found the gold sarcophagus, he's done... It's it's a, it's obviously an, a, a, an added line because you don't actually see him say it. He says it when they get in the car. So it's almost like they're trying to okay. create a bridge between the previous scene and what they're going to show you next. And it's, it's missing it. something. It just felt, it just right. felt odd. Fives, meanwhile, is telling Volnavia that the waters have begun to rise and that they need the key to open some gates that will take them down to it. Yeah, it's all very confusing it, at this point. About it what's it going is. On, it's right? all a bit vague, isn't it? it it's yeah. almost like the writers haven't quite worked it out for themselves yet, <laughs> and they're doing it as they go along. Yeah. But when he goes back to the sarcophagus, he discovers it has been taken away. He vows revenge. That's all he does throughout the entire film, isn't it? Pretty much all he did in the first one as well. Yeah. Biderbeck is examining the sarcophagus, and he discovers the secret key. Stuart's body is discovered by the two police officers, and they take it back to the camp. Biderbeck takes one look and says, What mind could conceive of such a death? Fibes, replies Trout. Dr. Anton Fibes. Yeah. We cut back to Fibes, still playing with his organ and vowing revenge, like he was in the previous scene. Yep, yep. yep. Later, everyone is sat around the campfire having dinner, discussing Fibes and what his reasons for killing could be. Bidebeck muses that perhaps vi- vibes, vibes. He's gone German. <laughs> vibes. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling the vibes. Bidebeck muses that perhaps vibes is after the same thing as him. All right. Where's he got that one from then? Also, well. I, mean, I suppose I he mean, stole the map, didn't he? He stole the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's only one thing. If, you, if you're looking for the same thing as Biderbeck, then there's only one reason you're looking for it. But Biderbeck hasn't told anybody what this reason is. So now he's going, oh, Fibes could be looking for the same thing I'm looking for. Meanwhile, everybody's going, yeah, what is that? That's true. That is very true. You, you, you know as well that Fibes could have done all this and drawn no attention to himself whatsoever if he hadn't killed a single person. Yep. Because yeah. you, you've already... We've already talked about how he didn't need the map to get there nope. because he already knew where he was going and he'd already set everything up previously, hadn't he, years ago. Yeah. If he'd have just kept his distance from everyone and just avoided everyone, he could have done all this with no hassle yeah. at all. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. I, I, uh, no, also, maybe I missed something, but where did Biderbeck get his first elixir of youth from? Never. They never explain it. All right, so I didn't miss something. No, no, they don't explain it. Biderbeck tells Diana that he loves her and tries to explain that everything he's done has been to safeguard their future and that the next few hours are desperately important to him. Well, they are. Mm. He's not got many left. Nope. Biderbeck tells Baker that he needs to spend the night in the tent with the sarcophagus to keep an eye on it. Uh, I think that'd be a no from me. (laughs) You'd be like, ah, no, no No, thanks. No, no, no. Not with all this stuff that's been going on, you know. Yeah. But Baker beds down for the night as the wind howls outside. Turns out 
that the wind is being provided by Fibes with a huge fan. Yeah, yeah, two things. Okay. One, where did he get that from? Uh-huh. Two, the thing is, a wind machine doesn't sound like wind. You know what it sounds like? So it's like a low... A wind machine. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a noisy hum, isn't it? Yeah, it's a propeller. Yeah, yeah. But this sounds like a wind machine. Like, but this sounds no, like no, wind. No. Yep. Yeah. How did he even get it there without anyone noticing as well? I mean, it's it's a big piece, isn't it? Oh, it's massive. It's it's yeah. it's the kind of wind machine you use on film sets. <laughs> ah, that's funny, that isn't it? <laughs> that's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, he does, and uh, in the tent, Volnavia straps the sleeping baker to his bunk. Then she cuts open the tent with a knife. Meanwhile, we cut to Trout and Waverly in bed together in another tent. Yeah, it's tense, isn't it? <laughs> There's lots of them. Yes, very good. You know what I'm dying for? Waverly asks Trout. Trout sits up nervously. What's a, a nice, big, warm glass of milk? Ah, oh, it's a gay joke. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. Volnavia takes over the wind machine as Fibes starts to turn an oversized giant screw which extends two walls inwards, crushing Baker in his bed. How? This <laughs> has suddenly gone all Looney Tunes, isn't it? But Looney yeah. Tunes with more yeah. terror and screaming, but it's still, it's still a cartoon moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And how did he know he's going to need this? I mean, he obviously knocked it up at some point for this eventuality. Just in case I need to ever crush maybe someone just... in their bed, you know. Yeah, maybe he's got every kind of device known for every kind of circumstance. Like James Bond. Although, yeah, like James mm. Bond. Although, you know, crushing people in tents, that's probably likely in the desert of Egypt. So, so he's going to need it there, isn't he, more than anywhere else? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Later back at his lair, Volnavia and Fibes descend into a chamber, another one, where he has placed the sarcophagus and he hooks himself up to Volnavia's instrument. Right. He opens the secret compartment and speaks to Victoria as the waters slowly start to rise. But when he tries to get the key to the gates, he's shocked to discover that it's missing. Oh. We cut to Bidebeck examining the key in the morning sun, so he's got it. How did he get it? He found it, didn't he? When he was messing around with it. Ah, yeah. They find Baker squashed in his bed with a not-so-realistic head poking out the top of the sarcophagus. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's worse to come. Uh, it, it looked like something you would see in um, uh, Madame Tussauds in Blackpool. Not the, not the good one in London, but the other one. Louis Tussauds, isn't it? The one in Blackpool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they made Possibly. it. Possibly. Waverly wants everyone to leave, but Bidebeck is adamant that he is staying. Fibes is watching from a distance through a telescope as Harris drives away from the camp with Diana. In the distance, Harris spots a Union Jack flag and he hears bagpipes. He thinks it's the Scottish Fusiliers, and I can't say that word, but I'm going to stick with it, and that they will help sort this all out. He leaves Diana in the car yep. and he trudges up the hill towards the flag. Does, but when yeah. he gets there, he just finds 
the animatronic band dressed in kilts with a record playing. Yeah, it's not even... I mean, you make it sound like there's multiple. It's just one, right? It's just one, yes. Yeah. He, he runs back to the car, but Diana is gone. Mm-hmm. He climbs back in, but suddenly sand starts to blast out of the dashboard into his face, and he screams. How? <laughs> If memory serves, in the previous movie, they kind of do the same gag, but with cold. They turn they turn a car into a, like a, a deep freeze that bl- it blows snow out. Right. Do they do the flag business? No, they don't do the flag business. Oh, okay. They just turn a car into a, a blast snow and ice out of the dashboard, I think. Or maybe he puts something right. through the window. I can't remember. But it's essentially the same gag. Right. At the camp, the car returns on its own. Inside, Hackett's skeleton is at the wheel. He's looking. Yeah, his clean plastic skeleton. It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bidebeck sets off into the cave, looking for Diana. Trout and Waverly follow him in, but get blocked off when a wall descends. Bidebeck finds his way into Fibes' lure, and he demands to know where Diana is. So they finally meet Fibes and Bidebeck at this point. Yep. Five says that unless he gets the key, Diana will die in three minutes. She's been placed in a pyramid, which Five seems to have knocked up in the last few minutes. He's very handy. He is. And she's placed on a table with a wire mesh over her body and face as water slowly fills the room. This is tense again. No, 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 it's a pyramid. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, Five... He's like... I didn't know. I thought I didn't know this. What you meant when you said you're going to pyramid scheme going? <laughs> it involves drowning women. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was about selling toothbrushes. Ah, well, you know, that's very eighties. Meanwhile, Fibes has placed Victoria on a boat as the waters reveal the sacred gates before them. He tells Volnavia to tell Bidebeck that as the waters fall, revealing the gates, they rise in the pyramid, drowning Diana. Why are the gates sacred? Well, the, the the gates that lead to the waters of life. Ah, so that makes them sacred. Then that makes All them right. sacred. I was, yeah. I was tough. In my head that was. Mm. Volnavia turns a handle, and spikes protruding from golden snakes in the ceiling start to lower themselves into the pyramid. Bidebeck blocks it with a wooden board, and then runs back to Fibes. Meanwhile, Trout and Waverley are discussing how to get through the door. There's a couple of these moments where they cut back to them. Isn't there one bit where Trout's scratching at one of the toenails of the giant foot of the statue? And, and yeah. Waverly tells yeah. him, oh, we'll leave it alone. It's the man's foot. Yeah. Bidebeck reaches Fibes. Fibes tells him that finding the river of life has been his life's work. And Bidebeck admits that he needs it too, that his elixir of life that he's used to sustain himself for years has finally run out. How many years, asks Fives. Too many to remember, admits Bidebeck. Well, we, we don't learn how Bidebeck no. became this no. way. No. Right. Fives tells Bidebeck that the only way to save Diana is to give him the key, because once the gate is open, the waters in the pyramid will drain back out. They're just gates in water. How's that work then? Don't know. Huh? <laughs> don't you think that this all feels, for a film that, feels quite padded when you get to like the last 10 minutes it kind of rushes by doesn't it 
It's like it's like yeah. he's trying to finish yeah. it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Bidebeck makes his decision and he gives Fibes the key. The devil take you, he says. Not for some considerable time, I trust, smirks Fibes. The wood holding the ceiling up snaps and the snakes start to descend again. The waters rise more and more, but suddenly the water stops and starts to lower as Fibes steers his boat through the open gates. Yeah, he's won. He's won. The wall opens up for Waverley and Trout and they rush into the lure. Bidebeck runs past them, back to Fibes, as Volnavia disappears back into her silvery tube. Dancing as she goes. Dancing as she goes. Bidebeck reaches the gates, just as they close, shutting him out. And as Bidebeck begs Fibes to let him through, the Doctor sails away into the tunnel. Diana, now free, crouches down to comfort Bidebeck. She tells him not to worry. It's not the end of the world. But as Fives begins to sing somewhere over the rainbow, a beaten Bidebeck starts to age as all the stolen years catch up to him in a few seconds. And that's the end of Dr. Fives Rises Again. Whoa, what an ending. So, Paul, what did you think of Dr. Fives Rises Again? I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you that I'm a fan of these movies. Mm-hmm. As much as I lo- really like the first one, I think this second instalment is much more fun. They really ramp up the oddness. Uh, they really ramp up the humour. I like all the little nods and winks to the audience that you that you get in this movie. All the cast are great. Vincent Price, I know that you've said he annoys you in this movie, but I think he's doing a fantastic Vincent Price impersonation almost in this. Mm. He's doing the thing that he does in countless other horror films but he's kind of doing it in a very campy way Robert Quarry's good I like all the little cameos from Peter Cushing Terry Thomas and Beryl Reed. they make me smile every time I see them I think the production looks great I like the music even the 70s organ music <laughs> I think it, it works mm-hmm. all of it fits perfectly together for me I know that the script is has got holes in it that you could you know drive a massive truck through i know that um but you know we we've talked about movies in the past that that you like and you recognize all the flaws in it but you still connect with it and you still like it and you you kind of love it a little bit as well because of all the little mistakes that it makes and this is one of those for me I do think it's one of the rare occurrences of a horror film finding the right balance between horror and comedy because that's a really hard thing to do. So, yeah, this is a big hit for me. I've, I've This film has been in my life. Both these films have been in my life probably since I was, as I say, eight years old. So right. they mean a lot to me. So be gentle, Colin. Okay. Uh, so this is a film that suffers badly from the way we do our podcasts. It's, it's not a film that stands up to the forensic examination that we have to do for these notes. That's very true. I will completely agree with you. Um, on that. Yeah. After, after 10 minutes, I was thoroughly annoyed. <laughs> and, and this is a self-inflicted wound because it was my idea to do it, <laughs> which made me even angrier. <laughs> I was happy. So there's that. Now, I, I don't have any past history with this film. I didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. Couldn't care less about it. Mm-hmm. 
So this is like seeing it almost for the first time, although I, I think I must have watched it before at some point in my life. I think the the first one we actually watched uh, a couple of years ago when you came to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, yeah, we watched the I first one. I think I fell one. asleep during I that. I think you did, fell asleep, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the scenes that Vincent Price isn't in. He's gonna be so. I just found, he's, gonna be, I just he, defer, I just, he's gonna be so upset the next time you work with him, Colin. Especially if he's listening to this. That's true. This podcast. That's true. Because um, I just found like he just droned on and on, and it was just it didn't push the story further. It was the same stuff again and again. There's a lot so of I just found. There's a lot of repetition and padding. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, so I grew weary with that. I think it looked cheap. Really. Yeah, it looks cheap. It's visually interesting, but painting something purple is not exactly any great skill. <laughs> I don't think it looks cheap, but okay. No, it does. You're wrong. <laughs> right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think if I just watched it as like aimless entertainment and wasn't paying attention to it, I think I would have enjoyed it more. And I would excuse like its simpleness and its shallowness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's designed for a certain type of person. Um, Be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd bother watching it again. That that is very interesting because considering the amount of times I've probably watched it in my life. Mm. Yeah. 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 I can quite happily never see it again. I don't think you hated it, though, did you? No, no, I didn't hate it. And I, like I said, I'm bearing in mind that I, I, the, the, the fact that we had to write notes for it ruined it. Do you think that, that you probably would have been a lot harsher in your summation of it if it didn't include lots of actors that you, that you really like? Yeah, I quite possibly would have just turned it off. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that maybe that would be the case. Yeah, but you didn't. Yeah. You stuck for I, it. I, no, no, I stuck mm-hmm. for it. I, I, I just found it quite dull for most of it. Oh, two very different opinions there. We don't get that very often these days. We tend to... No, we don't. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, oh, so for me, in conclusion, it's a miss. So a hit and a miss. It's the way we like it. If you say so, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, so that, that's it then. So thank you to our Patreon supporters. And don't forget, you can now email us at info at retrospectionpodcast.com. You can also visit the site, which is retrospectionpodcast.com for news and reviews. And you can leave messages wherever you like. And you can still message us at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And you can still listen to the music from the films and TV shows that we review on Spotify. Please rate and review us because it really helps. And remember to always twinkle like the stars that you are. It's from me. Goodbye. Oh, nice. Goodbye. <laughs>